Hi, it's Manny Jules speaking to you from Cold Creek on the Kamloops Indian Reserve. I'm the Chief Commissioner of the First Nations Tax Commission. I just hope uh, everybody's safe and sound at home and uh, that uh, you're taking care of your health and your families. Over the last 11 weeks, I've been thinking a lot contemplating and really being inspired by uh, the work of George Marshall in the reconstruction of the world economy after the Second World War, but also what happened during the 1918 pandemic, the so-called Spanish flu influenza. And one of the reasons that's of particular interest to me is because my pa, my grandfather, his first wife and four kids died within a space of a week here in Kamloops. And also I started to really pay attention to what happened to First Nations and Indigenous people in the Americas uh, since the advent of, of colonization and how that's impacted us. And in particular, for myself, uh, looking at the history in British Columbia, and how the smallpox epidemic of 1862 affected us and really led to uh, the fact that we didn't have treaties, uh, we didn't have agreements with the federal and provincial governments and lost all of our jurisdiction. And so when I think about what's happening right now with COVID-19 and really the the complete dependence that First Nations have got on the federal and provincial governments, primarily because of a lack of jurisdiction and also because we don't have access to our own resources to be able to take care of ourselves. And I'm particularly struck by a document that was given to uh, Oliver in 1910 by the Interior Chiefs, clearly outlining a number of points that they wanted settled. And this was just a, a month before the chiefs met with Sir Wilfrid Laurier here in Kamloops in, in, uh, in, in August of 1910. So the Oliver statement was in July. And so anyway, when I read this document, what really struck me uh, was the fact that the chiefs were talking about uh, they needed doctors, they needed education, they needed an ability to be able to have the resources, have a proper land system so that they could compete with whites. All of the things that uh, are still prevalent today. And I strongly believe that the roots of their statements go back to the smallpox epidemic of 1862-63. And the reason for that is is. Chief Louis uh, from my community was born in 1832 and was a chief, uh, declared chief of my community in 1852, virtually, well, not virtually, but a hundred years before I was born. And he passed away in 1915 and so would have been chief at the time of the smallpox epidemic and survived. And I can't help but think and believe that when he was trying to address the governments, 
to have a fair and just settlement of the land question. In the back of his mind, he didn't want a repeat of what happened after the smallpox epidemic. The fact that we couldn't look after ourselves any longer, that a lot of our uh, spiritual uh, beliefs were impacted uh, because of uh, the advent of the church. Also, a lot of our traditional medicines and herbs couldn't cure what we were facing with smallpox. And of course, there are many, many other pandemics that affected us, even going back here in British Columbia to the 1700s. But the living memory of Chief Louis and Johnny Chalhitsa definitely went back to the smallpox epidemic of 1862. And for us here in British Columbia, that was a critical time because the colonial government was morphing from a colony of Brit- of Britain negotiating its entree into joining Canada to become a province. And of course that led to, you know, BC actually becoming a, a province and then the advent of the Indian Act. And because of the Indian Act, we lost all jurisdiction, the ability to collect taxes, T-A-K-S-I-S, the ability to be able to organize ourselves. All of those activities were banned and outlawed by the federal and provincial governments. So we couldn't tax ourselves, we couldn't raise money to fight the land question. And that was really the background, I strongly believe, uh, because of the activities of the chiefs at that time, because they could remember exactly what happened. And this was just... You know, if you can imagine it, uh, eight years or so away from the Spanish flu influenza, and my pa was was uh, was born in 1887, and so was a relatively young man during all of these processes. And so, during the early part of the pandemic here, uh, isolated in our home. I couldn't help but think about the plight of all First Nations uh, right across the country, thinking about how they were doing, how little resources we've got uh, to be able to to deal with this in a very real way. The complete lack of infrastructure, the complete lack of of doctors and nurses, uh, all of the things that... uh, you know, other governments are able to muster and bring to bear. And then I started t- turning my attention to what was happening in the United States. Uh, and, th- and that happened as a result of two things. Uh, you know, the First Nations Tax Commission has got a working agreement with the Land Tenure Foundation out of Minneapolis-St. Paul. And of course, over the last number of days, there's been a lot of controversy about what's happening in Minneapolis-St. Paul. And also the tribes dealing with taxation in the United States. We signed a memorandum of understanding to work with them. And I couldn't help but uh, think about the visit we had in Santa Fe last year and the drive through the Navajo Reservation and the complete dependence, again, that the tribes in the United States have got on the the federal and and uh, state governments 
because after COVID was announced, of course, all of their income was initially, uh, well, not initially, but it just immediately dried up because of their dependence on what I call a loophole economy. Uh, casinos, primarily. And in September, I had a chance to visit um, uh, the president of the National Association for Tax, Taxing Tribes in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And at that meeting, there was other representatives from Oklahoma, and every one of them had a casino. And so I've reached out to them, just wishing them, you know, good good health, looking forward to a future where we can communicate more directly and begin to help one another. And I also started to reach out to my good friend in New Zealand uh, from the Naitahu, by Christchurch, the South Island of New Zealand, uh, Tamari, just wondering what they were doing because the initial reports that came out of New Zealand was that potentially a quarter of the elders in, in Maoridom would could could pass away. And fortunately, because of the actions, the early actions of the New Zealand government, that hasn't happened. But unfortunately, by the same token, when you look at what's happening in Navajo country, the highest rate of infection of COVID-19 per capita in the United States, and the complete dependence uh, that they've got on the federal government, and of course, like, like us here in Canada, there's never enough resources. And in my estimation, there will never be enough resources until we get a reconstitution of our jurisdiction, particularly over land and resources, so that we can basically begin to look after ourselves. So right around the early part of the shutdown, I attended a meeting with the Shushwap chiefs and at Squamsheen Health Society buildings. And I spoke to them, reminding them of what happened in 1918, that there's very real potential of people dying, that we're basically repeating ourselves to the federal and provincial governments saying that we need jurisdiction so that we can look after ourselves, that we need doctors. When I think about Navajo country, one of the first persons I talked to about what was happening there was uh, my deputy commissioner, Chief Commissioner David Paul. His dad, Pat, is married to a Navajo lady. And within a very short period of time, she lost three aunties and numerous cousins. And last summer, uh, myself and my family drove through the Navajo reservation. And just so you know, it's like 16 million acres. It's got, 
you know, Monument Valley. It's uh, it's just an incredible uh, piece of land. And I couldn't help but think about uh, that trip uh, during this 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 time period, and the fact that when you look at the huge expanse of the reservation, and learning later on that there are thirteen grocery stores in sixteen million acres, the fact that they the majority of Navajo people don't have running water, uh, it just you know, in overcrowded conditions. And so, like us here in Canada, we're ripe for a pandemic. And because we have no jurisdiction to look after ourselves and being wholly dependent on somebody else, it's just, uh, for me, it, it becomes really demeaning. Knowing the proud history of our past and the fact that we're now having to literally beg for government programs. And some of the recent uh, statistics uh, clearly show that we're getting about 50% of, of what uh, other Canadians are getting in terms of program delivery for COVID-19. And so I started to think about the reality of the situation we're in but also thinking right away early in the early days of the pandemic uh, how we should really begin to organize ourselves to deal with not the first phase of the pandemic, which is the emergency phase, the lockdown phase, the, the containment, but turning my attention to what we could do to begin to ultimately win our freedom, but to exercise, with the cooperation of the federal and provincial governments, the kinds of jurisdictions that we require to begin to look after ourselves. And one of the most compelling books I read during this period, The, the Great Influenza, the epic story of the deadliest plague in history. I, I just absolutely love this quote. Those in authority must retain the public's trust. The way to do that is to distort nothing, to put the best best face on nothing, to try to manipulate no one. Lincoln said that first and best. Leadership must make whatever horror exists concrete. Only then will people be able to break it apart. So when I think about the reality of the situation we're in now and how we have to make that concrete, the reality is is that we have to recapture the spirit of our ancestors. We have to think about them in terms of giving us the strength because they lived through many pandemics. As a matter of fact, we are the survivors of those individuals that came through a myriad of different pandemics, which in itself is an incredible story of survival. And the fact that during the latter part of the 1800s, 
the governments here in Canada and the United States felt that we were going to be a vanishing race, that our people were going to die out as a result of various pandemics. And so when I think about this in terms of concrete approaches, we have to organize ourselves. We can no longer hide behind sections of the Indian Act, like 89 and 87. We have to be able to exert our collective jurisdiction because the big lesson in all of this is that all of our individual nations are not big enough to be able to look after all of us. It's only through the collective will of each one of our nations and each one of us as individuals where we will be able to overcome this. Because if we continue to be fractured, continue to look to the government for various programs, this is what it will get. It will be get more dependence. And so when I look at federal and provincial programs, right now we need that. Because we have no adequate resources on our own. When I look at my own community, there's been a debate here on whether or not we should even have an elders facility or an expansion of Squamsheen. I believe we can if we have the collective will. And so for many of us, one of the central debates that we have to confront and face is the fact that our collective rights for health and welfare and elder care is indeed a collective right that trumps an individual's right to be able to hoard, to be able to just look after themselves, because that isn't what we did in traditional times. In traditional times, we depended on one another. We looked to one another to be able to protect our lands, protect our elders, make sure that people were fed. Those were called watchmen. And so, as we face down the pandemic that's facing us right now, the kinds of aspirations that we have to have is how will we, as a collective force of Indigenous people here in Canada, be able to influence at a time of Canada having to really retool its economy at a time when Canada has to look inwards to retool its manufacturing sector, retool the way that all of us will be able to operate in the future. And as I was saying earlier, all of that is changed. We're not going to be going back to January and February of 2020 anytime soon. You know, the struggle for vaccines happened during the 1918 pandemic. It had its roots in the latter part of the 19th century, the formalization of science finding out about scurvy, finding out about polio, 
all of the other abilities that science really created to be able to develop vaccines. And so science had to be formulated. There was a lot of quackery at the time of of the, the 1918 pandemic. And you can see it even now. People were in denial that it was even happening. As a matter of fact, uh, the president at the time, Woodward Wilson, didn't even make one public pronouncement about the Spanish flu influenza because he was fighting a war, the First World War. And that disease probably killed upwards of a hundred million individuals right around the world. We're not seeing those kind of numbers, fortunately, with COVID-19. But it could have happened. And the reality is, is that we are going to be having another pandemic in the future. And how are we going to prepare ourselves for that? Are we going to be dependent on somebody else to look after us? Are we going to have to be, as Evan Solomon said the other day, yet another Oliver Twist? Please, sir. Please, sir. That's what we're doing right now, is we're asking somebody else to please give us some more. When in fact, First Nations helped build this land, and we should be having a true partnership in this federation. And that means an orderly vacating of the tax jurisdiction between the federal and provincial governments. And that's not to mean that I don't believe in the integrity of the Canadian tax system, because I do. I believe that what has to happen is that there has to be an orderly vacating of tax room to First Nations by the provincial governments and by the federal governments. And that's going to have to be done through legislation, through tough negotiations with those other levels of government. And I believe that the way we have to approach it is on the basis that we're prepared to begin to look after ourselves, that we're tired of depending on somebody else to do something for us, that we need our own infrastructure institute to facilitate building not one elders care facility, but many right across this country, that our communities need potable water, that we shouldn't be just building one water system or sewer system, but many, many right across this country, that we need business-ready infrastructure, so that we can have a diverse economy, one that fully participates and is integrated within the Canadian and therefore global economy. And the basis of that has to be an organization for economic development and cooperation, so that there will be a development of standards, because when you take over responsibilities, you've got to be able to take over and think about the liability as well. And we don't want to have a Walkerton in our communities where somebody's going to be dying as a result of, of uh, contaminated water sources. That's why set standards are critically important. 
We want to be able to build infrastructure that will last many generations. Yes, infrastructure has to be maintained. Yes, infrastructure has to be developed in conjunction with the federal and provincial governments, but I believe strongly that that's one area where there can be support uh, by the federal and provincial governments to work with us and begin to divest themselves of some of the tax room that they've got so that we'd be able to look after ourselves. So infrastructure, in my opinion, has to be a key component of the rebuilding after COVID-19. And so when you think about that particular institution, I think that we need training facilities because a lot of these operations have to be manned 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. It has to be accredited. And so that's going to require federal legislation. And I am calling on the federal government to enact its processes as quickly as possible during this pandemic so that when we reach the end of the tunnel or come out of the tunnel, we'll be ready with shovel-ready projects. We're asking the federal government to monetize a lot of their expenditures that they make in capital and infrastructure so that we would be able to use the First Nations Finance Authority to go to the international bond market, to be able to have others around the world invest in our betterment. And that's been very, very successful because people are looking to help Indigenous people around the world. But they also need certainty in terms of their investment, and that would bring about that. The other thing is, when you look at the amount of infrastructure deficits that's within our communities, we're looking at probably in the range, and it's even going to be higher now because of COVID-19, in the range of $45 billion. There's no government that's going to write a check to do that. But if we create the investment climate, we would be able to have true private-public partnerships to facilitate developments on our lands. And that's what it's going to take. It's going to take a partnership. It's going to take institutions that create standards that we willingly are going to be a part of. And I believe the First Nations Management Act is the vehicle to be able to do that. The other thing that we're going to need... I believe, is a proper land title system. Because our lands are not, as in the words of our ancestors, able to compete on an even footing with white people or white institutions, as they said back in 1910. And in order to do that, we have to have a land title system that allows us the ability to be able to negotiate many, many different aspects of developments on our lands without having to approach the federal government to agree to an addition to reserve land, agree to the development of our lands. 
And I hope that the First Nations Lands Management Act will be able to facilitate some of those developments. But it's going to take standards in that particular area as well. When I think about Sawasan and their development of their treaty, you had the federal government survey the lands, you had the provincial government survey the same lands, then you had the Sawasan people themselves surveying the same lands. And so when you look at surveying just as one example, that's going to have to be coordinated on a national level. Land transactions are going to have to be made easier. It can't take forever. In the words of my dad, we have to be able to move at the speed of business. And we can't do that right now. Because fundamentally, Indian reserves are still owned by Her Majesty. Queen Elizabeth doesn't even realize that. But that has to change. And so we have to use Section 9124 of the Canadian Constitution to be able to facilitate legislative change. And it isn't about doing away with one's national identity. I'm Shuhwapmuch and always will be. But I strongly believe in national institutions. Because without all of us working together from sea to sea to sea, we're not going to have the strength and the will to be able to accomplish what our ancestors always talked about. And those are high aspirations. And so, as I've been sitting up here in the mountains, those are some of the thoughts I've been having. Is thinking about what role we will have after phase two and phase three happens. Will the federal and provincial governments begin to move? I've been paying particular attention also to the discussions between First Nations leadership and the federal government and the provincial government. And the myriad of programs that both have been giving to the citizens. And a lot of our communities and individuals, because they haven't been incorporated and therefore don't pay a tax, are not eligible for a lot of the federal programs that are eligible or that are open right now. A lot of the provincial programs, like stumpage, is not available to our communities. Uh, and therefore, we, we lose uh, many opportunities uh, because we're not in a position of being a true jurisdiction on this land. And I believe that that has to happen collectively because each of us on our own can't operate every institution. We just don't have the ability to be able to do that. And it's like the old saying of Tecumseh. You know, Tecumseh was uh, an incredible inspiration for me, and he's also been one now. His view, his world view, was that First Nations or Indian nations, as he looked at them then in the 1700s, had to work together. That a bundle of arrows were stronger than one arrow. 
And he spent his life fighting for that. And that's what we're going to have to do now. You know, I, I look at my time and all of us as being finite. One of my aunties just passed away last week and it was really strange to have a COVID-19 funeral for her. She didn't die from COVID-19. She died from lots of other health problems. I went to visit her on the Saturday, the, the day before she passed away. And she was very labored in her breathing. She was at an elder's facility in Kamloops. And I couldn't help but think that, God, we, we need elders facilities so that our elders aren't passing away outside of our own community. We need our own hospices. We need our own doctors. We need, a, and there are many nurses and there are many doctors, but we need many, many more to create the science to be able to do that. And so when you think about the 1918 pandemic, it's deja vu all over again. And so when we had my auntie's funeral, we all had to practice social distancing, wearing a mask, gloves. People are saying don't hug, but everybody was hugging. It was really hard not to. And I couldn't help but think about my grandpa Tommy, who must have been about eight years old in, in 1918, because he was born in 1908. How he must have been young, like a lot of the kids that are running around the res in their homes right now. You know, listening to the talk that was happening at that time. And he went on to raise lots of daughters and a couple of sons. And uh, he struggled through the 1930s, you know, the hungry 30s. He had an incredible orchard. My favorite apple tree was uh, on his place, summer apples. God, I love those. I can't help but think about all of those kinds of people that we all have right across this country. People that were inspired to look after themselves, had the ability to be able to look after themselves, who hunted, gathered, grew crops, because there was no such thing as welfare back then. You either had to make a living or you didn't, or you just succumbed to lots of other problems that we still face today. But this complete dependence on the federal government has meant that we can't even build our own homes without the minister agreeing that a home be built. And that's, that limitation means in and of itself that we can never catch up to the housing backlog. If you believe the AFN, it's going to take 300 years or 800 years. If you believe the federal government, it's kind of backwards there, but you get the idea. We'll never catch up to the housing backlog if we have and will continue to have dependence on the federal government. We have to be able to free our imaginations. It's a saying from Bob Marley, one of my favorite songs. 
we have to free ourselves from mental slavery. And that means being able to have an imagination, to imagine what's going to happen after COVID-19, what changes will occur in our society, because pandemics have a way of forever changing societies. So when I think about the 1918 pandemic, one of the things that we've been using a lot in this household is Lysol. I'm sure many of you have been as well. Lysol really took its root in the 1918 pandemic as a disinfectant. Before then, people didn't pay an awful lot of attention to disinfecting. And Lysol, now I, like many of you, regret not investing in them uh, prior to the uh, pandemic. Even statistics. Statistics took its root in the 1918 pandemic because people had to look at statistical evidence about infection rates, the spread of the Spanish flu influenza, not only in the United States, but in Canada and around the world. In Australia, one of the last places that the Spanish flu influenza affected because they were able to have a bubble, they called it the plague. They didn't call it the Spanish flu influenza as we did. They called it the plague, and you can imagine what happened during that time. Because of the loss of oxygen, people literally turned black and blue. And people were in major cities in the United States, literally stacked up because they couldn't get rid of their dead. People were afraid to, to even pick up bodies to be able to bury because they would be infected. And so when we think about what kinds of institutions we require, what kind of skills we need to develop, it's all of the ones that we've been wishing for and hoping for. We need more doctors to be able to look after our infirmed, just like our elders, elder chief said in 1910. We want doctors. The reason they said that is because of their own personal experience. They said we need education. And as my cousin would always remind me, education is a double-edged sword. It can either be, be used as a tool or a weapon. And we have to turn education into a tool. A tool that will help us rebuild our nations, rebuild our communities. We need an educated population. And in order to do that, we need to have schools. We have to have our own curriculum. We have to be able to have our own language programs. But we can't do that with complete dependence on the federal and provincial governments. But the retooling of our own economies, because we've been just uh, dependent on a loophole economy as well as one that is dependent on somebody else to fund, is going to be an interesting challenge for all of us.
It's going to require an incredible imagination. An imagination that we can't really fathom right now because we can only imagine it. We can only hope for that. But how you do that is by creating the institutions to facilitate it because it's got to move beyond a wish. It's like somebody hoping and praying that they're going to win the lottery one day, myself included. But you have to be able to have an income. You have to be able to have the pride of that income and the pride that comes with individual home ownership, individual businesses, contributions that we will make to our own betterment, the collective strength that we've got to have as First Nations. Those are the kinds of things that I think about. What do we need to do? How can we harness the intelligence, the strength that we've got within our communities? You know, you just think about for a second the artists that we've got. And, they, and they've been very successful in terms of promoting themselves and in terms of developing the, the, the marketability of First Nations art. And, you know, that goes right back to what I call the Indian Group of Seven, including Norvell Morisot, Alex Janvier, and others, that laid the groundwork for artists today and the contribution that they make to the economy. But artists, you know, that when they create something, they own it. They own the copyright, the trademark. You can't reproduce it without their permission unless they sell it. We're not in that position collectively. You know, the contributions that our people have made over time is incredible. The canoe, the snowshoe, words like puma, Pancho, heroes like Montezuma, Geronimo, and others. Chief Joseph is one of my particular heroes. I just love what his saying was, let me be a free man. That's what we need now. We need freedom. And with freedom comes responsibility. And I believe that we're grown up enough to be able to accept that responsibility and to be able to move forward. But we have to do it within the context that our ancestors talked about. Our ancestors talked about, let us work together so that each of us will be great and good. That means working with the federal and provincial governments. And I believe it's in their best interests to get the message after COVID-19 that if they don't involve First Nations as an integral part of rebuilding the Canadian economy, it will be running on six cylinders as opposed to eight. Maybe I should say 
five cylinders because we have to be able to work as the First Nations, the Inuit, and the Métis. All of us as indigenous people have got a proud history in this land. And so when I think about the smallpox epidemic that really led to the colonization of British Columbia because we didn't have the population anymore. The first smallpox epidemic happened in the latter part of the 1700s, decimating the majority of our population, followed by, less than 100 years later, another smallpox epidemic that even wiped out more villages. Our Shushwap nation lost a considerable amount of villages. We literally abandoned villages and moved in with others, just like what happened at Haida Gwaii. That's why at Haida Gwaii there is just Masset and Skidigat, when in former times there were many, many villages. And that repeated itself throughout Canada. And so, when we think about this pandemic, we have to put it in context. We have to be able to think about and think our way out of it because without an imaginative thinking and discipline and developing a wherewithal of, like our ancestors always talked about, to never give up. That's why in the midst of all of this, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that there will be a change in our communities that opens up more sharing amongst us, that opens up the fact and the concrete reality that if we don't work together, we'll never be able to break that concrete as individuals. Only as a collective force will we be able to break down those concrete barriers. So, I'm optimistic, as I always have been. I get that from my ancestors. I get that from the stories that I've heard over the years, all of the myriad of speeches, all of the joking that I've heard, despite all of the hardship, one of the things that we've always had has been humor. Some of it's black humor. But in this time of need, what's happened is our communities have started to come together as individual communities, as nations. And we have to translate that to a national approach to dealing with our individual needs. And that means, and and it's going to require discipline. It's going to require the political will of the federal government to finally let go of its fiduciary responsibility. I'm not a fan of fiduciary responsibility. When I think about fiduciary responsibility, it's somebody else has to make a decision for me. 
I'm grown up enough to be able to make my own decisions. That was really driven home to me when my brother John passed away. And I went to Indian Affairs and I said, uh, I'm John's older brother, I want to be able to look after his will, as he had asked me to do. And they said, who are you? I said, well, I'm John's older brother. They said, well, you could be number 10 in line as far as we know. We have the responsibility to deal with it. And that was true. Indian Affairs was going to give away his house, going to give away his land. Those kinds of things happen as a result, a direct result of the Indian Act. And because there's no consensus around getting rid of that colonial piece of legislation, I reached the conclusion that the only way we could deal with it is through optional legislation so that we could bound or bind together those who are willing to move together in lockstep. And that's been very a successful approach. The First Nations Management Act has been the most successful piece of legislation in Canadian history. And it has its roots in the philosophy of my dad when he talked about we have to be able to move at the speed of business. We have to be able to look after ourselves. We have to work hard. We can't accept that something's going to be given to us for free because every inch of ground that we've ever won has been through the blood, sweat and tears of hard work. And so when we think about the future, it's not going to be an easy path for us. But we've got the collective will and I believe that we'll, we will overcome. And so when you think about what's happening in the United States, and when I look at the United States, uh, particularly this week with all of the riots and protests about uh, this individual from Minneapolis-St. Paul, it's unfortunate. You know, it brings to bear the kinds of racism that we've had to face since the advent of Christopher Columbus. We can't forget that we were the first slaves in the New World, that Columbus brought slavery to Spain, indigenous people going back to Spain. Those are hard memories. And a lot of times we want to erase those kind of tough memories because when you think about it, it's just too unbearable. And that's what's happened as a result of the former pandemics. Is we don't want to really think about it because it's so hard to think about what happened in the past. We want to be able to think about what our nations were the fact that we had artists, culinary chefs, scientists, engineers, everything that made up a complex society we had. 
and we had it all over the Americas. And how do we reclaim that? That's one of our challenges. So the Indian Act has to go. Because there's no consensus, we have to develop optional legislation. That piece of optional legislation is and has to be one of the first pieces is the Infrastructure Institute so that we can bring our collective will to building schools that we need, health centers that we need, water systems, sewer systems, roads, major projects. All of those things can be brought about if we choose to work together, and we have to. I think about what happened in the past, but at the same time, because we've survived, I think about the strength that we've got in our communities and all of you as individuals. That's why this podcast for me is really important is to reach you as an individual. Hopefully to inspire you a little bit to work along with us, as my dad would say, does he think like us? So that we've got a philosophy, not only of goodwill and cooperation with those who have colonized us, but also goodwill and cooperation amongst us. But more importantly, that our nations are made up of individuals that you represent as individual listeners. And I call on you to work with us and to work with your communities so that we can move forward. And I, oh.